Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, video edition, joined by Dr. Adam Seafew. Dr. Seafew is a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, and he, he should need no introduction. He's a friend of the show. Adam, it's great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. I wanted to start with a tough question, and, uh, and uh, I, I will talk about it for a couple of minutes, and then you tell me what you think. And feel free, heard, to, feel free to plead the fifth. <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard you ambush people before, so I will uh, be careful. <laughs> uh, 1937 was the publication of Mulberry Street. Um, the, the, the two books, McElligott's Pool and Mulberry Street, were books that um, you know, I was exposed to as a child. And um, of course, now the Seuss organization under pressure from collective action is no longer printing these books. Um, and I just want to talk for a minute about my experience reading these two books. So the two that, you know, I think you pointed to are two that I've read. Mulberry Street, 1937 is his first book. It tells the story of Marco. Marco starts, he's at his house with his father. His father says, go out there into the world and tell me what you see. But when you come back, don't turn minnows into whales. Don't embellish. Don't uh, don't confabulate. Go out there and see what you see and then come back and tell me. Marco goes out on the street and he sees, uh, you know, a horse pulling a carriage. And uh, then he starts to think, you know, that's just not a great story. Horse pulls a carriage on Mulberry Street. What will I tell my father? Um, you know, maybe the horse is, uh, is a zebra. Well, maybe instead of a zebra, he's a reindeer. Well, maybe instead of a reindeer, he's an elephant with, uh, with a Raja from India uh, riding on top. And then he goes on and on. And his mind uh, shows that creativity uh, that comes only with youth. And um, by the end of the book, he thinks of all the wonderful things he might have seen on Mulberry Street. And he gets back home and his father asks him, well, what did you see? Anything that excites you? Anything to make your heart beat? And he thinks for a minute and then he blushes. And then he says, I just saw a horse in a wagon on Mulberry Street. So he, in the end, he doesn't confabulate. And then the next book, McElligott's Pool, came out 10 years later. And it's the same character, Marco. And I don't know if readers will know that it's the same character from the first book. And this time, Marco is fishing in a little uh, shitty pond in his backyard called McElligott's Pool, where people throw their boots when they're worn out. And uh, this farmer comes to him and says, you know, you're such a fool. You're never going to catch anything in McElligott's Pool. And he talks about how the people throw their trash in there. There's nothing there to catch. And Marco says, well, maybe that's true. Maybe I'll sit here for a long time and I won't catch anything. But then again, maybe I might. And he starts thinking about all the things that he might catch in that pool. And that pool might be connected to an underground brook and it might go to the ocean and he might catch all sorts of things. He might catch all sorts of fishes, all sorts of, you know, whales and things even bigger than whales. And then he gets to the end of the book and he says, um, you know, that's why I think I'm not such a fool when I sit here and fish in McElligott's pool. Um, and, and I think that these two stories are actually, you know, 
there is there there are very linked stories. Um, on the one hand, this is a stern father, a father who was a father in 1937. You know, a father of that generation, and we know those people. They're the people who they don't like uh, fanciful tales. They want the stern truth. And yet Marco is a child, like all children, his mind will race to all these wonderful things, that part of the brain that I wish were still alive in my, in my head, it's long since dead. Um, 10 years later, you can see Marco, so interesting, he's channeled his creativity, not into confabulation, not into telling false stories, but into talking about possibilities, into a, I think a very uh, justifiable output. And so when I look at these two books that have been removed from publication, I guess it's worth mentioning why. Um, I believe that the McEl Mulberry Street book has a problematic portrayal of an Indian person. I mean, I'm Indian and I, I don't think there are many Indians that dress like that and walk around like that. And also a, a person of, uh, of Chinese origin is also problematically depicted. In the um, McElligott's pool, it was an Eskimo fish. I believe that was the problematic image. Um, I'm sympathetic that those images are not the kind of images that somebody would draw if they were writing in 2020, but this was written in 37 and 47. And what I think people miss is the book, the two, the, the book, these two books really are marvelous. They're not just regular books. They're works by a grandmaster at the top of his craft and they're books about the mind of a child and they're hard to replicate. And so my feeling is, and now I'm going to push you on it, but my feeling is we're in a bad place culturally if we think the response to these books that were a product of their age and actually still retain so much marvelousness is to suppress their visibility to a generation of people. I don't think we do anyone any favors. And I think we actually deprive ourselves of the power of art. And art isn't always what you want it to be. It's sometimes brutal and callous and unfeeling um, and can hurt. Um, but if it were not for those things, um, it would, the joys would also be diminished if it were only always perfect. And so I think it's bad. I really disagree. Thoughts? Thoughts. Thanks for um, asking the old bald white guy about, <laughs> about this. Um, I, you know, it, it was an interesting couple of weeks talking to people about this. I actually... I will admit to begin with that I probably have a little bit of a blind spot here because um, McGillicott's Pool growing up was one of my favorite books. I remember my mother reading me that book over and over again. Um, I was less attached, I think, to Mulberry Street. I actually really only started reading that uh, to my kids. Um, and um, as uh, an Italian from New York, and that should have probably rung more true to me, even though I don't think it was the New York Mulberry Street that, that referred to. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I took it as that. Um, and I love those books so much that actually Marco was on the list of names um, that we were considering oh, giving my son. Um, so, you know, I, I reacted very strongly up front um, to this news. Um, I think, you know, I was raised that we don't ban books, right? That um, when you stop allowing people to read books, the, you know, the next step is basically 1984 or, um, or um, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit 451. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and I, and I, and I believe that. I, I, I mean, I think, I think the ideal is, right, is that our society moves in a direction uh, which is good. And so books that are, you know, harmful, dangerous, bad, whatever, 
you know, people just stop reading them because they become offensive and they don't, they don't carry anything. I mean, you know, who the hell picks up Mein Kampf these days just for like, oh, pleasure reading. So, you know, I think that's my stance. It was interesting. I, I tweeted about it and I, you know, you know me, I try to stay pretty intensely just tweeting about medicine and nothing else. Um, but in a, in a point of weakness, I tweeted about that. And it was interesting because, you know, I got some pushback on it, which was nice. I think it's like maybe Twitter at its best because it's people who in my real life wouldn't even stand up to me to say it, um, actually did. Um, and, and, and we're remarkably honest, both on Twitter and offline. And I had a few email conversations with people sort of, you know, offline, um, email is offline now, um, who really like expressed the hurt in those books and, and, you know, and pointed out that like, look, these are books that we train children with and are they training people with, you know, intolerant ideas. And, and I, least kind of got where they came from. I, I, I don't think I was completely swayed. Um, you know, I'm not sure I picked up any of that as of as of whatever four year old, right? Um, life quickly overwhelms cartoons. Um, um, I wish I have met SpongeBob SquarePants in my in my grown life, but I'm not. Um, I don't know. I guess I get the difficulty. Um, well, that's good of you. I guess I would say that, um, I mean, I, 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 I guess you can, I mean, books of a generation are always in the future going to appear, uh, you know, dilapidated in some right. way, just right. like kitchens. When you go to kitchen from your parents' generation, it's going to dilapidate it. It doesn't feel right in some way. And often that is caricatures of people of other ethnicities. And, you know, right. uh, you know, uh, this, we're talking about, you know, this is my grandfather we're talking about. That's, you know, he's caricaturing, um, right. you know, um, uh, but but I am I guess I have a uh, I have the higher order fun you know the higher order rule in my rule book which is you can't use the f power of force to to suppress these ideas and I guess I think there's a theme here there's something that shifted in the culture just in the last ten years um, where I think you know it would have been unthinkable to sort of not have these books. The other thing that I think is unthinkable is, you know, I've been the the recipient of pushback on some articles I've written. I'm happy to have that. In fact, I don't think I've written an article that didn't get pushback. You know, I'm, I run the opposite career. Um, yeah. However, the new tactic I see is people will screenshot the title of the article and then re refuse to provide the link to the article for their audience. They say, right. I'm telling you what's wrong in VP's view. And then, you know, I pushed back and I said, you're depriving of your audience the audio, the opportunity to actually interrogate my view. They would see that you're actually caricaturizing it. You're not putting it full force and forward properly. Um, right. And then the third thing, the third theme that fits on this is, you know, I interviewed John Yonides on this podcast and I got some pushback saying, I ought not talk to him. We should put him in on a boat and ship him off to Elba because he can't be talked to anymore. Um, so I guess to me, this theme that the, I mean, all of these things can be true. My idea can be bad. McElligott's pool can have offensive content um, and John might have bad ideas. Those things can all be true. But the new thing I see is the way to deal with it isn't just to say, 
you know, one, that's stupid, that's wrong, here's why it's wrong, or even if it, nobody's reading it, as you point out, there's not even pointing to comment. Um, you know, I don't have to go and talk about why Mein Kampf is bad. Uh, nobody, as you put it, no, I don't think anybody reads it. And I actually think at the time, even it was, it was poorly written even by its own standard. You know, it's, it's, not, it's a poorly written book all along. Um, so to me, what's different is that somebody is deciding that we can't let other people have access to some idea because they can't make up their own mind. And that to me is fundamentally antithetical to pretty much what I believe in more than anything, which is you got to make up your own mind in this world. Right. I mean, I mean, I hate slippery slope arguments, but it is true that when you think about these books, and it's hard for me to even say these books that are offensive, right? But but books that offend someone, um, you know, what is the next step? Um, you know, do we always have to respond to the most uh, sensitive person and, uh, you know, withhold any of that material? I, and I don't think anybody agrees with that. Um, I also think there's a little bit of moral vanity here, right? That like, we do so well here. And, and that's, not true. Um, it's definitely, you know, there, there's a changing cut point of tolerance, right? I actually have some books from my childhood that are older than McGillicott's pool <laughs> that are, that are, that are awful. And actually the first couple of times I read them to my children, I was like, I can't read this. You know? <laughs> um, and you know, maybe that'll happen to some Dr. Seuss um, in the future, but I'm sure that there are ways, I mean, there are probably ways that you remember your parents speaking. I certainly remember ways that my parents spoke that by the time I was, you know, a young adult, I was like, you know, mom, dad, you can't say that, you know? Um, so it's, 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 diff you know, it's, it's difficult to know What's okay? It's 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 especially difficult when we're talking about things which have been published in the past. Um, I'm not a big fan of things being uh, cleaned up either. Um, but sometimes, you know, little tiny edits, if possible, are appropriate. Um, but I think you're right. I I think the ideal is that these things, if they're offensive, if they're no longer um, um, sort of attractive to the culture, what'll happen? People stop buying them and they'll stop being printed for that reason. Um, I actually think a lot less would have been made about this if the um, publisher had just said, look, you know, Mulberry Street, you know, we sold whatever, 5,000 copies of that last year. It's not worth us publishing anymore and stopped it based on that. That that hurt me too because if they stop books with less than five thousand sales, uh, the the, the, the <laughs> it's gonna hit close to home. It's gonna hit close to home. Okay, let's talk about something else. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess the last thing I'd say is you know, um, you know, my father was one of like thirteen brothers and sisters, and he talked about how growing up, he you know, he literally had no possessions except for um, you know, he slept on like the third bunk. Um, yeah, and all yeah. he had was books that he would read uh, by like a tiny nightlight. Um, and and books was his window to the world uh, with all its flaws and blemishes yeah. and imperfections. And yeah. and to go from that and, you know, a generation later um, to talk about, you know, not having some books by not just average writers. But I mean, this guy is a grand. I mean, this guy is a I don't know. I, 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 I think we're missing the point. I mean, he's not an average writer. This Theodore Geisel, this Dr. Seuss, he's an extraordinary writer. Um, uh, 
Thidwig and the Big Heart, Thidwig the Big Hearted Moose, one of the most lyrical, magical books. Um, right. Actually, after right. this, I'll tell you the first time in my life I encountered that book uh, was a is <laughs> a very funny story. Um, uh, he, he was a, he was a lyrical writer, and you know similarly Twain and uh, the other person I think of is Cormac McCarthy. When I read Blood sure. Meridian, my God, Blood Meridian would not last a minute without. I mean, it, it offends me, uh, right. and I'm a hard to offend person. Right. Um, uh, well, I mean, come on, think of you know Faulkner, Hemingway, yeah. you know so many of the things that we uh, just consider you know iconic um, have really uncomfortable parts to them um and and we should be able to read those um you know and partially because you got to know history um you know there's great writing even that contains some objectionable ideas we have to be able to read those um we've always talked about and i really think it's true that that the way you develop who you are and sort of argue for good is to understand some of you know what's bad um you can't argue with someone um if you don't understand where they're coming from um and that's that's critical right yeah. um I, I guess the argument with dr seuss is i don't know is does that carry weight when you're talking about a book for a four-year-old you know, I don't know. I I still have the books. I still plan on reading them to my grandchildren. And, you know, maybe I'll point out that, like, you know, when you see, you know, Uncle Vinay in the future, don't don't picture him as this as this riding the elephant here, right? <laughs> with, with a ruby in his you know, crown. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's OK. I mean, it's also not the central theme of the book, in my true, opinion. True, true, um, true. Okay, let's talk about advising trainees. You're about to tell me a story when we started, um, um, and I'm curious. So, what's what's going on there about this advice? You you've been giving advice for a lot of years now. Yeah, um, and and I have to say, um, this is actually not related to um, a, you know a single person or anything. And, and it's what I was going to say is is that it's been a sort of wonderful experience. Um, you know, obviously, I've been teaching evidence-based medicine here forever, right? Um, I've been teaching a course to our fourth, to our first year, sorry, on, um, we call it medical evidence. And it's about just, you know, how to look at the literature, how to read the literature, how to understand um, where, what we do in medicine, where that comes from. Um, and it's been so wonderful recently that as I've given pieces of advice to students, um, that they've actually pushed back on it to say, well, come on, that's clearly flawed. Um, <laughs> and one piece of advice that I was, I was recently given was um, information that I know um, both locally and nationally, uh, that students who don't take step one um, after when they have a choice, so a student is finishing their preclinical years, and most students would take step one after their preclinical years, um, but some students would put that off until after their third year, and that, you know, those students actually tend to do worse on the standardized tests during their third year, okay, during their clinical year. Um, and in advising some students, I've sort of pointed that out and say, well, this is a reason you might want to take, you know, step one after your preclinical years before your clinical years, so it'll make sure that you do better. And my students like jump all over me. Yeah, and they're like, how bias. can you say that, right? That's a perfect example of selection bias. Um, and it made me reflect on a, boy, it is wonderful when people use your own tools against you, you know. Um, 
it's also, um, it also made me think about how much of the information that we use to advise people, um, you know, it's not based on any real evidence. Um, it's mostly just kind of gut opinions. Um, well, I think that's fascinating. I mean, um, you know, the funniest thing is all the biggest decisions in life, there is no evidence for <laughs> the very big decisions. Yeah. Um, but I always found, um, you know, it's so interesting when I think about being a student, I was just thinking before I started talking to you, I think, um, you know, I think I was a third year student in 2007, 13 years ago. Um, okay. So, um, I think you're 13 years older than me. So I think like you were my age back when I yeah. first met you. Yeah. I remember thinking, you know, what an old man that is. <laughs> it's amazing that I haven't aged at all since then, right? Yeah, you, you're the same, the same youthful look, the youthful glow. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember, you know, I, I, I've uh, been seeking you out since uh, for, I guess, 13 years looking for your advice. Advice is interesting. Um, you know, there's a reason why the students, the students that seek you out are seeking you out. I mean, that's part of the, the intrigue of it is that to some degree, um, you know, they're recognizing that you have the personality and temperament, you know, because obviously not every student is seeking you out and different people seek different right, people right. out. But the ones that seek you out are seeking you out because of partly, you know, they see um, a similarity, perhaps, or they value your opinion. Um, and I think so that's one interesting thing. The next interesting thing I think is some part of advising is that just by going and talking to the advisor, it's revealed to yourself what you were thinking all along, you just yeah. needed to talk to somebody. Um, the third part of advice is I don't know, I, I, I do think some of these things are, um, I feel like there are some pearls in there, but you're right. You know, if you look at the evidence, who knows? It's a, yeah. it's a this, is, this is like a whole podcast on selection bias, you know, uh, thinking about the students who come to you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually looked at this a, a few years ago and I looked at my evaluations that were given to me both um, in didactic courses and in clinical um, settings between students who were in a required course or were who was, or who were assigned to me, okay, which is my first year course in clinical teaching I do, versus evaluations I got from students in non-required courses that I teach, right, who took the course somewhat because they're like, I don't know, an Adam Seafew fan, yeah. um, and other people who chose to do, you know, a reading elective with me or chose to spend extra time in clinic with me. And man, I do terrifically with those people who've chosen to spend uh, time with yes, me, yes. you know. Um, and it's probably important we consider that in, in when we look at people's evaluations. Um, I do think, right, I mean, we, we know very well that so many ideas, you know, you have, it's sort of ill-formed, and it takes either talking to someone or maybe, you know, starting to write about it to kind of recognize, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Um, and I think sometimes, you know, the best advice you get, right, is just someone who you can sit with to talk to um, in a pretty open way. And you're right, sometimes students will just kind of come to a conclusion in a conversation with you without you saying anything. Of all the advice you gave me, I'd say the majority has been very good. The one advice <laughs> that I think that I have, I've always had shifting feelings on and I wonder yeah. where you, is, is academic medicine. Um, yeah. I'll tell you why. Um, the virtues, yeah. getting to work with trainees and students, number yeah. one. Um, 
um, I, I would say getting to work with patients, obviously that's important, but you, you know, you're going to get that in private practice too. Sure. Right? So, right. Okay. So that's the part that's that unique getting to work with trainees, um, who, uh, very rarely irritate you, um, often, um, delight you and, and, and very occasionally impress you so greatly. And you wonder, you know, uh, how, how they could be so awesome. Um, so, so that's the best part. Um, um, but the part they don't tell you about, um, I, uh, I, you feel like a Mary Kay salesman by that. I mean, uh, I knew some people <laughs> growing up, you know, the Mary Kay sells the cosmetics to the person and that cosmetics person goes and tries to make the money. And I feel like, you know, you work at a university and so much of your mental energy is looking around for how you're going to justify your own existence in this organization, even though you're working your tail off and, um, and by many accounts, I think, you know, contributing, uh, you know, in a, in a good way. Um, and the politics of it, um, you know, I've discovered it was, uh, it's, it's a lot harder to get on certain, you know, I, I, in my years in Oregon, I tried to get on the uh, medicine teaching service and I was able to do it only once with the chief, when I had a chief resident who would really push the envelope. I mean, there was, there was a politics to get on there. Uh, there's a politics to try to get your lecture inserted into the medicine curriculum. There's a politics to try to, to try to get an elective in the medical school. It was such a pain. And, and, and this is in place that I think it wasn't as much of a pain as it can be elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, and, and then the other thing is that the entire incentive structure of the whole field, um, every year there's another, you know, 20 trainees who want to run trials and have a lab and all these things that I'm not just disinterested in. I think that, you know, they're saturated and we need people to do some other kinds of thinking and work. Uh, okay. So, so, so that's the part that, you know, always gave me, has given me pause. Um, How do you think about it from where you sit? Um, It's funny. I was thinking about this recently. Uh, Oddly enough, it was reviewing a um, a malpractice case. Um, (laughs) You know, I think besides the things you pointed out, which are the things that everybody sells about academic medicine, right? You get to work with trainees you get to work with an incredibly rich bunch of doctors um, who are wonderful to you know have as colleagues. Um, to be honest with you, you probably work less than if you were you know out there in the community just basically working your butt off seeing patients all the time. I mean that is hard work. Right. Um, you probably make less money <laughs> than those people as well. That part I'm um, clear on. <laughs> yes. yeah. You probably miss out on some of the collegiality. Um, you know, I think of my friends who work in the communities and have like, you know, as a general internist, have such close relationships with a couple of rheumatologists who they refer to all the time. And, you know, those people refer patients back to them. And that relationship is a little bit more, I don't know, diffuse in academic medicine, where it's like, whatever, I just refer to rheumatology. Whoever they get is fine. They're all good. Um I wonder if maybe the, the 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 need for collegiality is less now where it's so easy to get colleagues. You know, part of why I think maybe I'll speak for myself, why I like Twitter is because I feel like it's given me colleagues who are interested in the things that I have everywhere. So when I can't find the two or three people who are open to listening to me talk about how crappy the evidence supporting, you know, some new heart failure drug is in my clinic, I can find them easily on Twitter. Um, the thing though that I'll, I will, I think never, um, never regret uh, getting in academic medicine is, you know, there is a lot of freedom. Um, you know, I have 
hours each week, hopefully my section chief and my dean won't hear this, um, <laughs> where I can kind of do what I want to do. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, going for a swim or doing ceramics or something. I'm actually here in my office, but I'm writing things, I'm investigating things, you know, I'm reading in depth about things. Um, and sure, I guess you could do that in private practice. You could say, look, I'm going to make a little less money because I want my Wednesday afternoons completely free to, to you know, live the life of the mind. But it's kind of like, it's kind of smiled at in academics, right? Um, as long as you, that leads to you producing something, people kind of respect that. I, I mean, that's the part I like. Um that part to think about things and, and mull things over. And, um, I was thinking for me, the best part is, um, you have it like some sort of little bit of an idea and some trainee comes to me and they're looking for some project and I tell them my bit of an idea. And then I say, here's what you do. You go there and you look up this stuff and you pull it up and you make this figure and show it to me. Then, you know, two weeks go by and then one day I open up my inbox and it's like, here's the figure. And I look at it. I'm like, Oh, so interesting. Like I'm literally the first person who's ever seen this bit of data. Uh, and that's the part I really like. Uh, but uh, the, the, the pains are the, the, yeah. the more than I bargained for. <laughs> I, I get that. It, it, is such a, it is such a pleasure, though, when you, you know, get that person who you can collaborate with well, right? Um, where you both have thick skins and can sort of bounce ideas back and forth and criticize each other is wonderful. And then it's, you know, it's a little like being a parent, right? It's, it's terrific to see what becomes of people. Um, um, some of whom, you know, you actually stay in touch with and you occasionally have coffee with others. You just, you know, you see their names on articles or they reach back out to you because they saw your name on something like this. And it's, it's, it's so cool to see, um, you know, what people end up doing. I don't know. I love that. Okay. You said you love Twitter and I have to ask, um, I don't know. Not, a, not, a, it, it seems like it, it's the periodicity is coming with greater frequency of the, the, the Twitter outrage mob. And, um, and, and by outrage mob, I mean usually hundreds of people who find some issue that really offends them. And often that issue is, um, <laughs> you better be careful. Uh, often that issue is the way in which somebody articulated something. I mean, it's a statement. And, and, and often that statement can be, I think in, in many cases it is problematic, certainly. In some cases it might just be misunderstood or taken out of context. Um, it's a snippet. And I think it's just so interesting um, that this is a thing, like, you know, not a week goes by that I don't see another example. Um, and in many cases, the retribution is trying to get that person fired from their job that presumably they've held for often in many cases, decades. Um, um, and it's just an interesting cultural phenomenon to me that somebody can work in a place for decades where, where you, you perform hundreds of thousands of tasks in service of the organization. And then over one snippet of something that somebody said that was interpreted in, in some such way, you know, that they can be dismissed. And then I guess the last thing I'd say is it hits close to home because I made one tweet about a bear. Uh, it was a children's book. It was something like a 
you know, um, uh, I want to write a children's book about a bear that looks out the window and says, I'm going to go outside when it's perfectly safe out there. And of course, it's never perfectly safe and the bear never goes outside and life passes him by. Um, and um, people got really offended by that. And I was like, well, it was in part a tongue in cheek commentary about, I believe, a, um, a, a true emotion that, you know, we can't relax restrictions until it is perfectly safe, which I think is untenable. Um, uh, uh, but it, it certainly didn't target any individual. And it certainly, I, I believe, is a harmless thing. Um, and yet, you know, it led to many calls that I be, I be, I, pa- I have to pack my desk uh, that, you know, all this work is, 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 is offset by one such thing. Uh, how do you how do you think about this phenomenon? I think that book would have been the opposite of McGillicott's pool and I would have never read it. It would have been terrible. <laughs> you would have loved it. You would have loved it. <laughs> it would have been a bear sitting in a den, not doing anything. It would have been terrible. Um, I, you know, I, your, your, your points are good. I, you know, I, I, I tell myself all the time that, you know, Twitter is not real life, right? Is that um, people assume the worst about each other. Um, people are so quick to be outraged by things. Um, and that's not how, you know, humanity exists. Um, and, you know, some of the people who we deal with on Twitter are just not people we would deal with in real life, right? Because you'd be like, I gotta stay away from that person, right? Um, the problem is, is that sometimes the outrage can cross over into real life, right? Um, where you can get very pissed off at how um, somebody talks about something, about somebody's opinion. And um, while it might feel good to uh, you know, say something inflammatory on Twitter, um, we have really seen in various um, places recently that it can have real percussions, you know, in their actual lives. Um, And for whatever reason, how, you know, how our society is now, right? I mean, people, people suffer enormous harm that I think is out of proportion to, um, you know, what they've said. Um, And it's usually what they've said rather than what they've done, to be honest with you. and, and it's often things that, well, the proper response would be uh, educating that person a little bit and, and not putting them, you know, sending them to a labor camp to be quote unquote educated. It's just that like, hey, look, this thing you said was offensive to people because of X, Y, and Z, and maybe you missed that, um, or maybe you don't care, or you know, maybe you just need to work on kind of articulating your viewpoint better because it is what you say, but you can say it without, um, you know, hanging people. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I'm with you. I'm disturbed. And, and I think a lot of people joke right in the back channels that like, how long am I going to last before I too get canceled? Um, and I worry about it because, you know, you've been open with it. I'm the same. I mean, the two of us are real lefties, right? And when you see what's going on now on kind of Fox News and what they're objecting to, like cancel culture is a big thing about what the right is getting themselves all bent out of shape with and and kind of getting the troops going on. And, you know, I think our side of things, I hate to 
say it in that way because I generally hate when people talk about it, but I don't want us to be so woke that the rest of the country looks at us as, as wackos and votes in 2024 for someone, you know, who shall not be named. Yeah, no, that's, um, I worry that sometimes it's the actions of the, the extreme side of, of, of my team that is the greatest threat to my team winning. Um, yeah. and, 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 um, but I think if I were to articulate in all this whole ecosystem where the, the fundamental problem is, the problem is with the leadership that uh, acquiesces to this uh, collective action. Um, the leadership um, is acquiescing to save their own ass. I mean, frankly, they're, they're acquiescing because they worry uh, that the Fuhrer will engulf them. And so they're happy to, the snake bites the arm and they have to, to cut the arm off. I mean, you know, metaphorically, they're happy to sacrifice somebody uh, to preserve themselves. Um, I think the leadership should say, that look, you know, uh, that, that many times the concerns and outrage is legitimate and, and that we're going to um, think about it. We're going to allow this person an opportunity to respond, which I think is an opportunity that you know I think all of us believe is part of due process. Respond, clarify your remark if it needs to be clarified. Um, you know, what did you mean by it? You know, um, uh, you should have a chance to respond. And there has to be some process where we adjudicate what is a fair punishment. I think, you know, we've lived through a lot of bad punishments where somebody had one joint in their pocket and we locked them up life in prison. I think, you know, uh, that, that's an unfair punishment. doesn't fit the crime. Um, so we understand justice has proportionate punishment. Uh, loss of a job after decades of work when you're older and it's often very difficult to get another job, um, that's not a trivial thing. Um, it, it can deprive someone of livelihood in the years they need it the most. Um, you know, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I have a lot of experience uh, I don't want to get into, but I mean, when you're in your 60s and you want to try to find a new job, it's not so easy. Um, and that's, you know, that's a problem in this society. And so, um, and the other thing I, I think is often challenging is the need to, um, to face one's accuser. I mean, many people have professional rivalries that extend beyond a specific issue. They find a specific issue and they see an opportunity um, to bring someone down that they have disagreed with on, in the past. Uh, that's a natural human temptation and the system has to have some way to correct for that. But I guess I would say, you know, I, I, I'm never going to be in charge of a major organization, but if I were, I would tell people, you're, you know, there has to be some process by which we adjudicate these things and uh, we can't just throw out people. We also have to recognize how hard a job a lot of these people have. Um, um, you know, whether it's producing content, you know, constantly, and therefore the opportunities to, you know, kind of screw up um, are are practically daily. And I mean, screw up in yeah. a way that other people hear. Yeah. Um, you know, we all screw up constantly and fortunately mostly our our spouses our friends our children just you know <laughs> tell us to shut up or, or, or ignore us uh -huh. but then also people um you know in today's world who have to deal with um you know what goes on in institutions and and how people interact in institutions and making tough calls about like you know boy how we should handle um um, you know, people who don't work well with others. I mean, those are really difficult. And having been in a lot of those meetings with, um, you know, um, you know, concerns from students um, uh, about faculty members or, um, you know, concerns between faculty members, you know, you're, you're considering lots and lots of things and there's a lot of nuance there. Um, and 
all of that gets lost once one side of the story comes out on Twitter and people pile onto that one side. Um, so we just, it's just like, I don't know, you know, we all have to grow up. We all have to be more careful. Um, and unfortunately, the outrage, which is kind of fun and breeds a lot of energy online, um, I, you know, I always feel like we should go back to our own lives. We should try to do what we can really do among our peers and our communities and try to make things better and easier for people um, rather than trying to seek one evildoer in the country and attack them every day. Um, um, that obviously, there are evildoers in the country who we should be attacking, um, but that's not what we're talking about. Right? Yeah, we're talking about normal, normal people who, who fall a, a little bit short. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, normal people who fall short on an instance uh, selected from a million instances that you don't see and you anchor to the one instance you do see, um, I think it's, 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 a, it's a problem. And often these, these people are people who are mostly aligned with you on the issues. And so you're sacrificing one of your own tribe to set an example. Um, I think it's self-defeating. And, uh, and ultimately, the issues that really matter, um, they really do matter. And we really need to do a lot about them. And you know, my opinion has always been, as a political animal, that you really want to solve problems, you need to redistribute the money, change the way the money is flowing, and, and, pro and, the, and, and it will address the issues you care about, um, hanging the latest offender. And I guess the last thing I'd say is it 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 it, it makes there are some people who I appreciate because they're willing to go out on a limb and say what they think. I've always appreciated them in whatever context, from academic science to writing essays. Um, those people are going to take fewer chances, and I don't want to live in a world where people don't take chances because people have to take chances in order for some of the greatest things, from science to humanities that have ever been created. Somebody took a chance uh, that it may um, uh, not go as they thought. Um, uh, you know, even even the celebrated uh, um, uh, musical Hamilton, isn't that a chance that people, a lot of people would say that, that that's not going to succeed, um, yeah. uh, uh, but it turned out to be stellar. Um, and, and, and that's true in so many ways. Stifling conversation, stifling art, stifling opinions, you know, is, is, is not something which works well for our culture. Um, and it's easy, um, you know, it's, it's one of the richest part, right, about working, you know, at a university that that sort of difference of opinion is is nurtured should be nurtured um i think ufc actually still does a very good job at that right and protecting people who are who are trying to share those um, um those opinions um but that doesn't work very well uh often when you get out there with it um and i think your point about you often end up attacking people who are you know quote unquote, on your side. Um, and it's because because we live in kind of echo chambers on Twitter, yeah. you know, usually the people who you're objecting with are people who, you know, you're following or your followers are following them because you all agree this, you all think the yeah. same thing. Um, it's ironic. It's ironic. Um, Okay, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, or what was what was we supposed to talk about? We're supposed to talk about medical humanities in your writing, huh? <laughs> I think we were. It was a long time ago, so we've already forgotten. Um, yes, I well, I knew it would be good whatever we talk about. But why don't we talk about that for a second? Yeah. You've been doing this writing. Um, oh, you know what it was? It was the article. Um, uh, that article in Annals on the ghost patient panel. Um, oh yes, yeah, so that was the thing which got us talking. Um, why didn't so you it was. Yeah. You unpacked it, it a little bit. Yeah. Sure. You wrote this it, article. I really liked it, it. It was an article um, 
where I just kind of reflected on all the panels that we have. And, you know, there are the panels that we all think about, you know, for me, it's my, it's my primary care panel. It's the group of patients who I'm worried about. Um, you know, it's the group of patients who I'm taking care of on the general medicine service in the hospital, you know, at a time. Um, but um, what struck me is, is, is the ghost patient panel. And they're the patients who, who are not your patients anymore, um, but you don't know they're not their, your patients. And it may be because they've unfortunately died without you knowing about it. It may be that they've actually fired you and moved on to another doctor. It may <laughs> be that they've moved and didn't tell you. Um, and it, the whole idea came because I was at my, I was at a track meet of my daughters and I saw some guy walking in front of me and I was like, oh my God, I used to see that person as a patient. Uh -huh. um, and I went home, I looked him up on Epic. I realized I hadn't seen the guy in 12 years. And I was like, huh, I wonder why, you know, um, like what changed that he no longer sees me? Uh -huh. I think the thing it made me think about was the patients that for whatever reason kind of departed my practice. And I guess in my line of work in cancer medicine, you know, that's not a, that's not a common scenario. I mean, they're right. usually right coming. Um, but, you know, I did lymphoma for a number of years and I had a number of people who, you know, we treated for Hodgkin's and once a Hodgkin's patient is cured, um, you know, they're often young people who go off in their life and sometimes you don't hear back. And I, and I was thinking about, um, you know, vi pretty vividly, a couple people who, you know, our lives intersected me as a doctor, them as a patient, um, you know, when they were in some tough situations, treated them, hopefully got them through their Hodgkin's um, and then didn't hear back from them. And I often wonder about those people. Where are they now and how is their life going? And I always wish, you know, I always wish that it's going wonderfully, you know? Um, yeah. And I guess that's the, that's the other thing about, I mean, it ties a little bit to the point about Twitter that I want to make, which is that, um, you know, the relationship you have with your patient is a real relationship. I mean, this is somebody you've spent hours with over the course of years um, in a room, in a very intimate setting where people tell you things they would never tell anyone else. Um, and, and, and the relationships we have on this online world are very superficial relationships. They're all about, you know, a, a sort of a caricature of a person. And so, um, you know, if, 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 if somebody I have a real relationship with said something that, you know, I thought wasn't perfect, uh, I'm going to have a huge grace period. I get huge, you know, huge leeway I give them versus somebody in, in, uh, you know, I just have a caricature of, um, right. but right. you know, at the, when you go to sleep at night, you don't think about caricatures. You think about real people. Yeah. And often, you know, the other big difference is, you know, there's nothing less anonymous than the interaction, I think, between a doctor and a patient, right? Um, you know, we, ne we may not know everything about our patients. They may not know everything about us. Um, but when we're in the room together for that relationship to work well, everybody needs their cards on the table. Everybody needs to be honest. You know, the doctor needs to be honest about what they know and what they don't know. The patient needs to be honest about kind of, you know, their fears, their wishes, their values, all that stuff. Um, and so when there is a, you know, a misstep in how somebody talks, talks about it, right? It's such a small part of, of who that person is and who you know. And sometimes you know where it's coming from. Sometimes you're just like, huh, that may be a hint to another part of their lives that's I don't need to know. Um, and when it's on Twitter and it's, 
anonymous and the person has you know a cartoon image as their um as their icon like you know i don't know you sometimes wonder like why why do i think about this why do i spend time worrying about these people um Okay, the last thing I want to ask you, you know, you've been in medical education a long time and you've worked closely with students for many, many years. Um, I was talking to another uh, faculty member and they had a few observations. And I want to know if you think, if you think it's a selection, you know, I, I wonder if you think it's true or not. I don't know. Um, are the students that we're training today different than the students we trained 30 years ago? Um, this person pointed out that, you know, 30 years ago, um, you didn't have to have a whole lot on your CV to become a medical student. You, you could have worked... Um, you know, you could have flipped burgers for a couple summers in college um, and you could have still had a good shot. You got good grades and, you know, you did well in science. Um, uh, now, I, you know, the, it's it's ridiculous. I, I've, I've never seen so much um, activities and busyness that um, that young people do. Um, I don't know. I have a strong opinion that that just can't be. That's just not what youth is for. I mean, you know, when you're 20, you shouldn't be working 50 hours a week in a lab. Um you don't, you don't get those days that many times in your life um, where you can actually go and explore. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think I said once, nobody wrote a great novel about the 21-year-old the pre-med uh, doing whatever it takes to get, yeah, nobody wrote the great, the great story of what the pre-med was doing to get in. Um, travel and going, you know, all these, all these yeah. things people do. Um, so one hypothesis is that, you know, we're, we, we have, it's our, you know, we're selecting people in a different way. We're selecting people for accolade uh, accumulation and not necessarily what you really want a doctor to do, which is to put your head down and, and do your damn job and have some core sense of, 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 of ethics um, to guide you, but really be sort of a, a, somebody who's used to a hard day's work and maybe you're not always going to get a thank you. Um, okay. So that's one hypothesis. The other hypothesis, I mean, I push back a little bit. I mean, cause I, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, the other hypothesis is that, um, you know, the kids are the same that they've always been. Um, it's, it's some of the ways in which uh, we've structured the education. That's different. We give them too many passes. I mean, we teach them that, you know, I don't know, it's okay to skip rounds for didactic day and things like that, that maybe 10 years ago we didn't do, uh, or 15 years ago. Um, you know, when I did my medicine clerkship, I, I don't think, I can't remember, but I mean, the only thing we did was that noon, you know, that noon didactics with you all, with you and Scott, um, and, and some others. Um, but we, we were always on rounds. Uh, we were there six days a week. Uh, weren't we all, we, I think we don't miss any rounds like for didactics, but now I think a lot of places, they, they pull the students off rounds a day a week. Um, you know, the more you're, the more your inpatient rotation is discontinuous, you don't see the same people day to day. Uh, you're inherently not as invested. I also think that, I don't know, this is a, just an observation that when I was a, a trainee in a clinic, I, I can't remember leaving before the attending, uh, but now everyone leaves before me. I'm the last one there. Like, what the hell? I'm the attending. I should be the first one to go. Uh, so I guess, I, so those are my questions. I guess, do you think that there's a different, well, one, do you think there's any differences at all? Two, is it a difference in how we're selecting people? Or three, is it a difference in what we're doing once we have them uh, over time? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I always hate to, I always hate to play the like, you know, days of the giants thing and things have changed and this generation stinks. Um, um, I, I do think, you know, I think part of it is, is that just what's available to uh, children, adolescents, you know, young adults is very different than what was available certainly to me and to you as well. Um, you know, we are, um, a richer society, um, you know, it's it's the rare 
person who's going to end up as a medical student who's, you know, working in their family's grocery store to make some money, um, you know, which is how I spent much of my childhood. Um, um, and because of that, there are like incredible opportunities around for people to pick up on, um, right? So, so people are working in labs, you know, rather than working in a grocery store, um, um, which I think, you know, that, that's got to be a good thing for, for their career choice and their growth. Um, I think there is a cost to that. Um, uh, Jeannie Farnan, who, you know, you know well from when you were here, and I have always joked that, boy, if we could fill a class with people who've worked in the food industry or people who worked in the military, we would do that. Because those people sort of understand customer service and understand what it means to succeed and work in a team, which is really what medicine's all about. Um, I think we get some people in medicine who are overqualified, right? Because um, you don't have to be that smart to do most medicine. You just need to work hard. You need to buckle down. You need to be good to other people. Um, and if you've done too much and have too many interests, maybe you're not going to be uh, so great at that. Um, I do think your point about you know, where the responsibility rests has changed. And that's your fault, right? Because you've been saying, oh, these duty hour restrictions are so good. <laughs> well, you know, somebody has to stay and do the work and someone has to be the continuity. And if it's not the intern, it's the attending. So <laughs> shut up, Dr. Prasad. Um, I put it into myself. Yes. But you know, I I, 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 I want to walk a line here about why I have these <laughs> feelings I do. I feel like, um, you know, Working long hours just to do paperwork. Well, that's not what we want him to do. We need to teach him to be doctors. But the flip side is that's not what's happening. We're just cutting the hours, but we're not doing what we need to do, which is like, what does it mean to be a doctor? Like, um, I don't know, I guess. Well, one, I think I've never, I, I do feel there's a difference in one sense. More and more people come to me and they're not that interested in learning all of it. Um, whether that's hemonc or general medicine or whatever, they're not that interested in learning all of it because they're all so focused on what they want to do that bothers me deeply because it offends my sensibilities. Well, um, you certainly don't have to convince me that we should be training more generalists. And, <laughs> you know, you should have David Epstein on to talk about the value of generalists in, I in should. life. Um, he would be good. Yeah. Um, I, I think that you're, you're, you're completely right. And I promise myself, you know, I, I've gotten to hate on podcasts when people say like, Oh, great question. You know, you're right. But you are <laughs> right in this. I mean, I think we both agree, you know, I, if 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 you worked at it, you could probably get someone trained in internal medicine in, I don't know, 18 months, two years, easy instead of the current 36 months. Um, because what you would do is you would say, look, you know, you're going to take care of heart failure till you're good at it. You're going to take care of chest pain till you're good at it. And you're going to move on. Um, and what's happened with duty hour restrictions is that we say, you know, there's less and less time that you're going to be there, but you're going to have the same balance of patient care and didactic learning and, you know, scut crap misery of the job. And so what happens is that we graduate people from residencies who've actually had less time with patients. Um, those, those residents, therefore, they actually have to work harder and sort of pay more attention to learn more from the patients they have to turn out, you know, good qualified um, um, doctors, you know, as we've been able to do. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I think residency has become physically easier 
but intellectually more difficult. Um, and it's a strange outcome of, of, you know, basically making training more humane, which nobody would argue that that was a bad idea. So interesting to me. I mean, um, when I think about, you know, like, what does it mean to be a great oncologist? I think, um, you know, that it is, you, you need to know a lot of facts and then you need to have somebody walk you through why we make decisions the way we do. And, um, and I feel like, yeah, we, we, we could do a better job of that. Similarly to what you're saying, you know, we could do a better job of training you to be good at seeing these different diseases. Um, because the answer too often is, oh, it's approved or there's a study uh, without a sort of a deeper look at those studies. And, um, I don't know that, you know, that's something that I feel like, you know, your class was my first exposure to it, but then, you know, you have to learn as you go. Right. All right. I mean, we, we, we've lost that. I'm hope, hoping to, you know, bring more of that back into medical education again. You know, it's, it's that sort of really close um, um, mentorship into deliberative practice, which yes. you need, right. You need to be with someone who's making the decisions, who's able to articulate, you know, why they're making the decision that's going on. Um, and hopefully they're making that decision, not because that's what the drug detailer told them, but because they're looking deeply at the evidence. And, you know, I think that if that's all our medical students and our trainees did, um, you know, we could train people really fast. Um, you couldn't train them all with one person because they'd have to spend, you know, a week with me, a week with you, a week with Mandrola, you know, like move them all around, right? Um, and get them people in different specialties, people who think differently, you know, surgeons who, um, you know, who consider the evidence in different ways, um, you know, would be amazing. Um, but but it would be it would be hard because it would take a lot of you know my time that I'm supposed to be seeing twelve patients in a half day clinic. I guess I'll leave you with one last thought, and I'm pick, and then um, what's my thought about social media and about trainees, um, which is that you know every once in a while somebody comes to me and they're like, oh well, what does it take to have lots of followers on social <laughs> media? And I say that you know anytime you're asking that question, I, I'm like that's not a good question to be asking. Um, but I think it's not just the you know it's not I mean it's not just the people who come say it. I think it's a lot of people from attendings to medical students to pre meds, which is our culture has confused um, wanting to be heard for having something to say. And so, so many people are overly concerned with wanting to have a big platform and say things and have people listen, that they forget that having something to say, um, that is the hard part. And that's the part you do by yourself, which is, you know, if you, if you want to comment about medicine, um, and, you know, if you want to say recovery trial has a press release and a statistical analysis plan, should we implement practice or wait for the publication? Okay. Everyone wants to comment on that issue. But if you want to comment on the issue and not have to, you know, eat eat, eat me, you know, uh, or, you know, yeah, eat what I'm about to throw in your face. Um, you, you have to have spent a lot of time thinking about these things. Like, I don't know, when do we change practice? What evidence do you want to see? And what are the pitfalls in studies? And are those pitfalls susceptible? Is this, you know, impartial Oxford run study susceptible to those pitfalls? And, and is this an emergency situation or not? And, and that is work that like, you know, you just do. First of all, a lot of people don't do it. I don't think they can get far in their career and never do it. But if you want to do it, you do it alone. You do it in residency. You do it late at night. You do it with friends over a beer. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I feel like we're missing in this um, social the social media environment, which is everyone wants to be seen and heard. Uh, but but you have to build your 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 tool for having something to contribute first. Otherwise, you're you're not going to do well. I think. Yeah. I, I guess 
I guess my response to that would be think, I mean, look, I have, I have whatever, a mere fraction of the followers that you have. Um, <laughs> For good reason. <laughs> I, have less, I have much less to offer. Um, but I, I think, you know, what are the benefits of having people follow me? You know, one of the things I like about it is that I, when I make content that I'm proud of, yeah. um, I like to know that more people than the 15 to 88 people in my class get to hear it, right? That's that's good. Um, I like it that actually there's a fairly diverse swath of people who will respond to things from me. So I hear from trainees, I hear from patients, I hear from journalists um, um, who I wouldn't hear from in any other setting. And I like that because that actually, you know, when they push back at me, that sort of broadens my view and understanding. Um, I think the downside is that comparing this to when, you know, I followed 250 people and a thousand people followed me and they were all people who were deeply interested in what I was doing. Right. Um, there's a lot of stuff that comes back at me, which is like, eh, well, that doesn't help. And then <laughs> oh yeah. We, we also, you know, there are people who are like the true believers, the one issue kind of people on Twitter who seem to have endless amounts of time to take you to task on something when it gets just adjacent to what they're interested in. Um, and I, tr I try to interact, you know, with people because I feel like if they're giving me the time, I may as well try to give them the time. But often those conversations go nowhere because that's someone who has a belief. They're there to get their belief across. They're there to convince me. And, you know, I usually I'll know within an, you know, a two part exchange that this person's not going to change my mind. And then like, what a waste of time. Yeah. More followers, more problems. I like to say That's <laughs> a, a universal truth. Well, Adam, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yes. And nice talking to you. We could do this um, all day. And, um, and, uh, I someone's got to go back to work. Someone's got to go back to work. Yeah. I got to go. <laughs> to see you. Okay. Take care for now. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.